Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to this month's episode of the Pig X Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney Howell. Today, we are diving into the topic of APP, also known as Echinobacillus Plural Pneumonia, which is a little bit of a mouthful. So from here on, we're mostly going to refer to this as APP. As an effort to continuing the discussion around improving pig livability, we've heard some recent discussions between Dr. Marcelo Almeida, a clinical assistant professor at Iowa State University, and Dr. Daryl Holtkamp, a professor in the College of Vet Medicine at Iowa State University, and have spoken particularly in the area of APP. These talks have been pretty positively received by the industry, and so we thought, who better to discuss this timely topic than Daryl and Marcelo? Gentlemen, thank you both so much, first of all, for joining us on the podcast today. Glad to be here, Delaney. Yeah, thank you for having me. So it sounds like you two have spent a lot of time together in discussions talking about APP and given a lot of talks that have been received very positively by the swine industry, which is why we asked you both to join us today. Maybe we can start out first in talking about what APP is, Marcelo. Yeah, so APP, which is, stands for Actinobacillus pneumonia, is just simply put an, a bacteria that is the etiologic agent of the porcine pneumonia, which is a form of respiratory disease that pigs have and the lesions are pretty characteristic, which are fibrinohemorrhagic and necrotizing pneumonia. Simply put, that's what APP is. Now, is APP something that would have been around for a long time, or is this a relatively new area of research? No, that has been around for a long time. I think the first isolation of APP dates back probably to the 1940s, maybe. Don't quote me on that. I mean, <laughs> it's been around for a long time. APP is not anything new, just Perhaps what we're going to talk about is something that uh, was unique or doesn't happen quite often in the industry these days. Yeah, and I think that segues to the good question of if it's been around for a long time, why has it recently been an area of focus for you and Daryl? APP has been around. We've learned a lot about it in, you know, ever since it was first discovered as a pathogen. Recently, what happened was we had an outbreak in Iowa, and that uh, brought up some questions about why we were seeing that sudden flare-up of cases and how it was possibly moving around. And we'll discuss that more in depth here in the next few minutes, right? But that's mainly why the, the sudden interest in, in APP. So there is always something different to learn, but this is was definitely a learning opportunity that just came about with these outbreaks that we had in Iowa. Yeah, and like you said, we'll get to that here in just a moment, but wanted to ask a few other background questions because a lot of our listeners are not necessarily scientists or veterinarians and want to make sure they have a full understanding of APP. So Marcel, as you look at APPs, are they all the same? And how common is it to see an outbreak like the one we saw here in Iowa? Yeah, they're definitely not all the same. APPs, they are classified. So one of the ways of classifying them is by serotypes, which is based on uh, capsular polysaccharides. And currently, there are 19 different serotypes described. So 
Not all of those are present in the U.S. They are, there are different prevalences of stereotypes in different countries, but 15 is present in the U.S., which is the main stereotype that we will be talking about today. Those are some of the main reasons or main differences between, between the strains. But even within those stereotypes, there are differences that we're going to discuss also. So now regarding eight outbreaks in the U.S., it used to be more common if you go back to before the 80s, it used to be a more common pathogen, but the industry did a very good job of reducing the prevalence or eliminating that bacteria from a lot of the breeding herds. And that work was primarily done or by the, the genetic companies. And then you, you end up cleaning the downstream flows and should they, so in the last 10 years, we probably had about around 70, 75 cases each year, which amounts to six cases per month. And here I'm accounting only for data that we have here from the Iowa State University Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. So it's not comprehensive. There could be more cases out there, but because APP has a particular presentation the veterinarians in the field may feel comfortable making the diagnosis and not submitting tissues for uh, further testing at the lab, right? So those those numbers may be lower than what could be happening in the field. And it only accounts for cases that were sent to the Iowa State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. But that's about what we have in terms of uh, cases per per year received at our lab here. For any of our listeners that may be new to the swine industry or just unfamiliar with the VDL lab in general, can you tell us about it and the role that it plays in cases like these? So the Iowa State University in the College of Vet Med, we have a veterinary diagnostic laboratory where we receive samples from all over the country from different species, including swine, bovine, equine, dogs, cats, all types of animals include uh, wild animals as well. Biggest chunk of cases are coming from swine. And uh, what happens is veterinarians facing health issues in their sites or in their companies will collect samples or either send whole pigs to the laboratory and we will request testing so they can understand what are the pathogens that are potentially involved in the health issues that they're facing at the field. And then here we have a team of diagnosticians, which I am a part of, and we will do the, a gross tissue evaluation for lesions, and then we'll do a histopathological evaluation and put together all of the testings that we do. Those could be bacteriology or PCRs and others to come up with a diagnosis for for what's happening with those pigs, right? And in that way, we contribute to disease management at the field. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I've been in the industry a little bit longer than Marcelo, and if I'm honest, probably quite a bit longer. <laughs> uh, you know, when I first started practicing or was in practice, uh, yes, APP was not high on our radar. In fact, I I saw very little of it. And so, you know, it's interesting to me to see how these these things kind of come back around. And 
it, you know, it's a good reminder too, I think, of the fact that these pathogens, we sometimes kind of get in the habit of thinking of them as being sort of the static being that uh, doesn't ever change. And I think if anybody still believes that after the pandemic, I guess they're probably not, not really paying attention there, but some viruses, some bacteria are more susceptible to changing and change uh, more rapidly. Uh, APP is a bacteria that, that happens to not change that rapidly, but it does change, right? And so, uh, over time, we've, we've come up with ways to, to sort of put those into buckets and the serotype is the, the way that, that we've done that. Uh, but it's also, you have to remember that those serotypes aren't perfect. And, you know, I, ideally that would be, you know, those serotypes would be predictive of, of how severe disease they would cause. And, and in this case, that, that just isn't, isn't the case, right? We've had serotype 15 or so remind me, I think it's not new. It's been around since what the early 2010s, I believe, you know, it didn't cause that big of problems. That wasn't noteworthy. Let's say put it that way. Now, all of a sudden, it's noteworthy. We have, you know, some groups of pigs that in this uh, recent outbreak of APP serotype 15 that had 50% mortality in one week, half, half their pigs gone in one week. And that, uh, you know, that's notable, obviously. And, and so, you know, something obviously has changed about that bacteria. And we're still calling it APP. We're still calling it serotype 15. But it clearly is is different. And, and I know Marcelo is doing some work looking at uh, sequencing some of these bacteria and he may be able to add some more more to that and also confirm that I'm right about when we first started seeing serotype 15 here. Yeah, according to the data that here we have at the at the lab, uh, our first isolate denial was about uh, 2010, 2011. But if you talk to different practitioners out there, they will tell you that they had been dealing with this specific serotype for longer than that. So it's possible that the serotype 15 has been in the U.S. for longer than or before 2010, but that's the register that we have here or the record that we have at that Iowa State Diagnostic Lab. But yeah, there are, like you said, it, there are differences between even within the serotypes and serotype 15 is considered to be of uh, high virulence in Australia, but historically here in the U.S., like you said, it doesn't cause a lot of problems, which is completely different from the situation that we we saw here in this recent case. Now, you mentioned that in 2021, this bacteria was notable in comparison to the 2010 cases. And I know you both mentioned the extreme death loss that drew attention. But what was it about the APP bacteria itself that was so different and noteworthy in 2021? We mentioned before that we usually see about six cases per month, so there's a little bit of variability in that. But what happened is that towards the end of 2021, late November, we started seeing a few more cases than what we're used to for APP. A few of the vets that were seeing those cases, they contacted us to try to understand what could possibly be going on. And when we started digging a little deeper on on those cases, we saw in a very small geographic area and in a very short period of time, we had a large number of cases that were all APP. So in total, in about two months, we had 20 cases of APP in a, in a, in a region in central Iowa that was about within a 20 mile radius distance. And then probably that, so that was December and January 
December of 2021 and January of 2022. And then up to June of this year, we had an additional 10 cases of that same case definition. And then initially we had nine companies involved up to this point. We have now 13 different companies that had outbreaks of APP with that same case definition. So June of 2022, obviously, is fairly recent. Is this still going on and still a concern that folks in the swine industry need to be aware of? We haven't had any more cases of that specific serotype since June. And this would fit with what we know about APP. APP is very sensitive to heat. So with the kind of temperatures that we're seeing now during the summer, it's expected that the number of cases of APP would go down. But those APP, they will survive somewhere, right, uh, within animals. And then come November again, December, when the temperatures start to get low, then there's a chance for seeing some more cases of that. So, yes, producers and veterinarians should be aware of that and, and take appropriate measures to stop or preventing this bacteria from coming into their herds. Daryl, let's talk about transmission here for a second. The very close radius of most of these cases that have happened here in Iowa. So what causes this kind of spread? Does it simply come down to biosecurity measures? Yeah, so if I could step back and you know just talk about a little bit of the epidemiology. Normally with APP, we think about direct transmission where you've got sort of pig-to-pig contact as being primary way it's transmitted. And then indirect transmission happens though where you get a, a fomite like a, a vehicle or a person or something like that that gets contaminated and carries it to another herd and then has enough um, bacteria there to infect another pig. And so, yes, it can, it can happen both of those ways. Biosecurity obviously would, would be play a big part in both of those. Generally though, you know, the way we raise pigs today in the, uh, in the U.S., all in all out, uh, in groups, we're not, we're not, you know, exchanging pigs. And so generally you're talking about indirect routes of transmission here. And so that's when we set out to investigate these, that's, you know, primarily what we were focusing on, although we certainly did ask about, um, you know, livestock movement events, but there were no, Cases where there were actually pigs moved from one site to another that would have led them to the direct transmission. What really caught our attention with this one was those 20 cases Dr. Almeida mentioned in that 20 mile radius. And that's kind of equivalent to, you know, doing a, an outbreak investigation of a foodborne illness, let's say a salmonella outbreak where you discover that everybody that's got it attended the same church picnic. Then the, the, the question becomes, all right, who brought the unrefrigerated potato salad, right? Or, or you, know, you try to sort out how that, how that may have happened. Um, but we, you know, this is a similar situation. And so we wanted to take advantage of that and, and try to learn as much as we could about that. And so that's what we set out to do. We picked seven of those 20 sites that, that um, Marcelo mentioned uh, in that, that small area and did a, a intensive investigation of those using an outbreak investigation instrument that we developed with some funding from the Swine Health Information Center and then support uh, from them to actually go out and do these investigations. And so we did that and and found, I think, some some pretty interesting things. Uh, there were certainly some some events like uh, rendering that we we rated fairly high, and, and I can go into that a little bit more detail here in, in a minute. But 
Uh, we looked at everything. We, we tried to be as comprehensive as we could. We looked at livestock transport. Several of these groups of pigs were in the marketing phase. And so we looked at that. We certainly looked at employees. Uh, they all had employees or caretakers coming and going every day. And so that was kind of the approach we took there. Darren, let's go ahead and dive deeper into that. Can you expand upon the study that you were both involved in and what the findings were? Let me start, first of all, uh, talking a little bit about where and when they occurred there. Uh, we already talked about where, but, you know, they, they really, the cases started in about the second week of December there. Uh, the first one in December was December 6th. Uh, and, and had about three cases. And then uh, you may recall, you probably don't recall the exact date, but there was a, a fairly significant duration that went through that part of the country uh, on December 15th. And that kind of set off a cascade of these cases. That kind of got us wondering about, you know, was that somehow involved in incidents of these cases? And, um, you know, typically APP, we don't think of that bacteria as being one that can easily spread by aerosol. I still don't believe that it, that was a significant route in this situation, although, you know, the circumstances certainly uh, had to lead us to, to explore that a little bit. But when you look at sort of the wind directions and sort of the pattern, when the sites went positive, it, it didn't suggest that, you know, that aerosol probably played a big role in that. One thing that, though, that we did find in several of these cases uh, there was some sort of stress event uh, that was associated with it. And, and that suggests that maybe the bacteria was there for some period of time, but then the stress event sort of set it off. In, in a few cases, it was a power outage, curtains failed to drop. In one case, it was in, uh, they were in the marketing phase and it was a multi-barn site. And, and so they were getting close to emptying one of the barns. And so they just moved the pigs that remained in that barn to the, to one of the other barns and, because movement is a, you know, a stressful event that, that seemed to have set it off. So that may be the ratio event may be related or may have had an impact, I should say, uh, through the, the potential stress that it caused. But, you know, we looked specifically for power outages and things like that that would have been caused by that event and didn't necessarily see a real strong pattern there. So not, not really uh, very clear about whether that played a role. The other area that I think probably the most stark, most uh, interesting, let's call it that, was we did discover that most of these uh, sites that, that broke with APP or had outbreaks of APP uh, did use rendering. The company that does that in the area, there's only a single company that does that, and they actually operate sort of geographically in, in all the areas they operate. And so there's a set of trucks, set of drivers that pretty much stay within that, that geographic area. And this, this 20 mile radius of APP outbreaks happen to all be within that, that one geographic area. And so that was interesting. We, we did attempt to try to explore that a little bit more by, by trying to figure out the exact routes these uh, rendering trucks would have, would have followed during that time, but we're not able to get the information to do that. Uh, but it certainly, you know, suggested that that rendering very well could have had a, an impact on that. There was one case or three cases, actually, that happened all within probably about a one to one and a half square mile area that all broke within about eight days, nine days, something like that. And, and so there was it just went from one to the next to the next. And, and there were big pile of you know, the things you hear is, well, yeah, I saw a big pile of pigs, dead pigs out there. And then. Uh, next thing I know, we had it, right? And so, again, there's lots of things that can transmit indirectly, but it certainly, you think about, you know, what how rendering is handled where you've got a, a truck where you get dead pigs and certainly would be opportunities for exudates and things like that to, to seep out of those trucks and fall into the into the area where the dead pigs are stored on one, uh, from one site uh, to the next. 
And then when you explore kind of how dead pigs are removed from barns and taken to those storage sites, typically at the end of the, whenever the, the caretakers, uh, the end of their day there or the part of the day that they're going to be at that site, when you sort of understand fully how they do that, you can see that there's plenty of opportunities or lots of uh, hazards that uh, lead to opportunities for that bacteria to get drugged back into the barn there. And so that rendering was one that was probably that we put that maybe at number one, but it certainly probably wasn't the only way that may have been transmitted from one site to another, creating a new case. I think those are great conclusions drawn in terms of transmission. But what was learned in terms of prevention that can be applied to future cases for those of our listeners thinking about what's next? Well, I, I've sort of jokingly said several times, and, and I say only sort of, I, probably not jokingly at all if I'm honest, but I think everyone in the industry is aware that you know, when it comes to biosecurity, we've, we've really probably focused more on the sow herd than, than grow finish. But what I didn't realize until we really got into these investigations is, is just how, how far we have to go. I, again, I jokingly say that we have only one direction to go. We can't get any worse. We can only get better, but that's probably not exactly true. And, and so I, I think to me, the big take home here is that, you know, we are, I'll, I'll say, com- entirely unprepared in the, in the wean to market phase. If, if we were to get a foreign animal disease here, like African swine fever or foot and mouth disease. And so, I, it scares me uh, a bit. I, I gotta have to say that I, um, I was worried before and uh, I did, you know, we did all these investigations and I, I have to say I probably moved into the scared category uh, a little bit there. But, uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's really the, the main thing. And, and a lot of the things that have happened in, even in the last five years, certainly the last 35 years created a system really where, uh, we have a very open production system. And, and by that, I mean, we have lots of things coming in and out. Uh, all the time. So we establish this group of pigs and then, and then we have bring in feed and we bring in people and we, we may have multiple loads of pigs coming in. And then when we market, we have multiple loads coming out. And, and so we have lots of things coming in and out of there all the time. And if you look at other biological industries like the food industry or ethanol or things like that, you know, they have engineered a relatively closed production system where you, once you get a sort of a batch established, you don't have all those things coming in and out. And I, I just think there's, we have lots of opportunities to kind of rethink how we've organized production, how we utilize labor, you know, how we utilize uh, third party contractor services. Uh, that's an, that's an area where, you know, when we looked into that closely, you, you realize that when, when some of these things get contracted out, companies lose complete control. Uh, well, not complete, but near complete control. And, and it, it's just a black box. You know, they, they may know a little bit about the person they directly contracted with, but if that person is also hiring others, other people, that's kind of where the knowledge ends and they don't know where those people are coming from. So, you know, there's, and there's just a lot of, um, areas I think that we need to focus on wean to market phase. Um, not only because of the risk it puts us to for African swine fever and form, uh, foot and mouth disease virus, but it also puts our sow farms at risk all the time for, for our endemic disease like PERS and PED. You know, there's just so much virus that's being created in these groups of growing pigs that it overwhelms our sow farms. And so we think we're making improvements in the sow farm. We, if you look at the data and say, you know, as measured by the frequency of outbreaks, we're, we're really not making that much progress. It's, uh, it's kind of depressing really, but, but yeah, so I think, I think that's my big take home Delaney is, you know, I think we do just have to get serious about, about that and understanding it's economics, right? We do these things because it's, it's a low cost way of doing them, but I think probably not, not sustainable. It may be a good strategy in the short term, but it's probably not a good long-term sustainable strategy. 
So Marcelo, Daryl knows this from past episodes that he's joined us on, but one thing we like to do in every show is leave our listeners with a take-home message that can be applied to their own operation. So based on this topic of APP and what was learned through your research, what would you say is a good take-home message for our listeners today? Yeah, I think one of one of the things that pro- is true for APP and is probably true for all of the other pathogens as well, and, and Daryl touched a little bit on that, is that it doesn't mean because you have APP or a, spe- a specific serotype of APP that you should not be worried about bringing in some other serotypes, right? And that's when biosecurity is really important. And in the case of APP15, that's also true because we've seen that even within the serotype 15, there is variability between the strains enough to cause different problems like we observed in this outbreak. So I think that's one, right? Don't just assume because you have a specific pathogen that you should relax relax your best security practice regarding that pathogen. Maybe another one is just a reminder that when you see the lesions or clinical signs that are suggested of APP, it's still important to send tissues to the lab so you can understand a little bit better of what APP specifically is causing those lesions because then you can probably take some specific measures, try to track track it down, see if it's coming from your self-harm or if it could be a lateral transmission like it was for a lot of the cases that we had here within this outbreak. And then, you know, potentially have some conversations with the companies close to you or the producers that are close to you and see what can be done in terms of uh, biosecurity to try to prevent these occurrences from happening in the future. And Daryl, what about you? Well, I think what do we need to do next? Let's start with rendering and uh, understandably, there's companies that, that need to continue to use rendering because of, you know, barriers to using composting. And so I think, you know, need to sit down and start thinking through how to reduce some of the hazards. So if we have this rendering truck coming, you know, on a regular basis, how do we get those dead pigs out of the barn in a way that is going to reduce the chance that we'll drag something back in from the, the rendering storage area back into the barn? And so I think that's what we have to do. Just start and, and think about, okay, understand how we do that, right? Uh, sometimes describe the, it as a hazard analysis. And so we go in and, and try to understand how dead removal is done. So that, that means the who, what, when, where, and how that is done. So all the detail. And then once we understand kind of the, where the hazards are there, then we can start to address those. And, you know, if we have to accept the, that the rendering truck is going to, going to be picking up the dead pigs, how do we do that? Right. So it may be, may involve some central collection point, but we have to be careful about that too. Right. Because that can create different hazards or new hazards uh, that we didn't have before. But so that, that's, I think uh, would be my, what do we need to do next to, um, to do here is, is start there. Well, as always, what an excellent episode. Thanks again there to Daryl and Marcelo for joining us. And thank you to all of you for joining us in today's discussion. We're coming back next month with another great episode around the topic of pig survivability. So be sure to hit subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a beat. Until next time, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been the Pig X Podcast.
PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. Big X. Ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.